The X Factor explains what happened from his perspective and who was involved. He's my old apprentice. I actually made him famous, um, you know, gave him the name Red Extreme. I saw him come run up the stairs at me and he was had that look, I'm going to kill you. And so I like tried to grab his jersey to stop him and talk to him and he like the movie Friday, he deboed me. Red Extreme posted a 17-minute video message to his Facebook page following the incident. He says, a cup of water was thrown and hit my wife in the back. I have never in my life felt so bad about feeling so good because knocking that low-life son of a expletive out was the greatest feeling I've had in a long time. He also accuses the X Factor of being inebriated. It says that I'm a meth addict which I, I'm a cocaine addict and alcoholic, been clean for four years. He said I threw a water bottle at him, which I didn't. And I flipped my car a yeah. week ago Tuesday. So it's been a wild week. Are you thinking about retiring now? No. no. They, this makes me stronger. Jesus, you know, Jesus was persecuted. I'll come back fighting. I'm staying in a motel in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, because you want to fake out your son that you're really going to do something that you're not going to do, and what are we supposed to do? And everybody down there would gamble on anything. Is it going to rain this afternoon? Who's going to win this golf game? Liars poker? I mean, everything. It was a fantastic experience, because the one big takeaway I have, and I tell people this all the time, is really tired your eyes are still closed and you're kind of out of it and I open my eyes and the wall three feet away from my bed is literally yellow with flames and smoke pouring in you can't kind of stop you know you're always looking for a way to make it better you're always looking for a way to do it faster or do it cheaper it's something to think about for young entrepreneurs out there who take business away from the competition sometimes there are consequences for doing that which I learned the hard way my name is Rob Hanna. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. My current company is Chicago Yacht Works. And what is Chicago Yacht Works? Chicago Yacht Works is an all-purpose recreational marine facility. So we sell boats, we service boats, we store boats, we instruct people on how to use boats, we rent boats. That has to do with a boat, we do it. And so is business booming? Business is very interesting. So the boat business in general right now is booming. The pandemic was very good to the people in the boat world, with one big exception. The demand is higher than anybody has supply for, and uh, we've had a lot of challenges. People always come in and say, you must be having the best time ever. I say, well, if I had 10,000 boats to sell, I could sell 10,000 boats and I'd be ecstatic. But if I only have three boats to sell and I have 10,000 buyers, it's actually not that fun. So. It's been good for business in, in many ways, but there have been a lot of challenges as well. And so what have the challenges been? I mean, it, obviously, yeah, that would be frustrating, but at least it's not like, I guess you're a restaurant and the government makes you close, right? Yeah, I, we did have to close. The government did shut us down last year. The state of Illinois went into complete lockdown in March 14th of last year, 2020, and uh, we were closed officially for about three months. There were a handful of us who were still going in every day and making sure the lights could stay on. And, you know, we had plans. So I immediately took all of my office staff and had them work remotely. We, we established a Zoom account like everybody else in the world. We met remotely that way and just started figuring out how do we get through this? And 
the biggest challenge for us was this was March. And so normally the Chicago boating season starts in May. Normally it's a May 1st start date. And March and April are our busiest months for service. So not being able to be open, that also meant my technicians couldn't be there working on all these boats and that our backlog of service work was going to become huge and significant. So we had to figure out plans for that. We created a rotating schedule for our technicians so that they would never be in at the same time or anywhere near each other. The benefit of having the lockdown was that our customers couldn't come in. So in a normal world, in the springtime, uh, the facility, which is uh, about eight and a half acres of land, 300,000 square feet under roof, is filled with customers working on their own boats right next to our guys working on customers' boats. And people are bottom painting and detailing and doing mechanical work and upholstery work and everything all at the same time everywhere. And it's very frenetic during that period of time. We couldn't have that. We weren't supposed to be there at all. We knew that we couldn't service our customers if we didn't show up at all. So we created policies and procedures that we all decided as a leadership group that everybody could live with and everybody felt good about and safe about, and that it kept the employees safe while still getting the work done so we didn't fall too far behind. Well, what do you think about them kind of forcing you to close, even though it seems like, you know, you're an outdoor activity that that might be one of the few things that you might be able to actually do even up north? Yeah, there was a lot of debate about that and, and the issue of, you know, what is a necessary business and what's an essential business and what isn't. And, you know, I think that for the my colleagues in the industry, I think we all feel like that's an unresolved issue because there are lots of components or parts of what we do that is essential, certainly to not only the boating community, but but even the broader recreational community. But we were not technically included in the definition of essential during that time. So it was very frustrating. I think the challenge is you realize that the people in government who are issuing these orders and these edicts are themselves going through this for the first time ever. They're learning on the job, learning you know, in real time, just like we are, what to do with a situation like this. And uh, you just make the best of it. It's one of those things where we didn't have a lot of time to judge it. We just had to come up with a way to get through it. Well, speaking of government, what do you think about your mayor there? She's, you know, I have to maybe ask where are your podcast people from? Because uh, I want to be careful here with Chicago politics. It's, uh, it's a serious thing in this town. I think she, like our governor, had a real tough time to, to come into office and then immediately have this happen. But I, I think that uh, in some cases, some people are able to learn on the job better than others. And I don't think it's gone particularly well. And certainly last year, we had a lot of challenges that were unnecessary. And in our business, we were truly impacted by the fact that the, the harbors did not open on May 1st as they normally do. They did not open until June 22nd. And there was no you know, real again, tied to science or anything else for that matter, rationale for that date and, and that huge delay. Well, maybe I know like one other mayor, the mayor of New York, because shit was going down there too. But I mean, it's just, if you know a mayor in the news, like I don't even try to watch the news, but she's very recognizable, that's for sure. And not on the attractive side, but it's more of the wild stuff she even says, you know, it's just like, I, I, I just couldn't imagine like, you know, you having to be shut down and then dealing with all that. I, I don't know if you're from there, but it is just like, yeah, I'm like, wow, this mayor does seem some wild stuff. And I'm not sure like 
you know, if you're not from a city, like you probably shouldn't know their mayor. But if you do, then it's probably not the greatest thing, you know. I think that's very true on a national basis. If you if you know a lot about any other city's mayors, they're probably doing something wrong. Right. Exactly. So that's the only reason I brought it up. I never even really bring up politics or anything, but I'm like, I've seen this woman in the news so many times that, like I said, you being closed down and stuff, I had to ask, because I guess if anyone goes to Chicago, your yacht club is actually right on the water, right downtown, right? So people would be able to recognize it pretty well if they're familiar with Chicago at all. Yes, but I, I do have to uh, kind of jump in and say we, we get mixed up constantly. So Chicago Yacht Works is different than Chicago Yacht Club. And we're, we're constantly confused. I'm a member of Chicago Yacht Club. And yes, our clubhouse is right on the water downtown, right near the Buckingham Fountain that was in Married with Children and, you know, the, all the famous sites. So it's, it's a great place. It's right there on the lake. Chicago is a very unique and interesting place to be in the boat business because it is the world's largest municipal harbor system. All of the harbors in Chicago are owned by the city of Chicago. And everywhere else in the entire world, all the marinas that you go to are owned privately. And so, again, anywhere in the whole world, Turkey, Italy, Cape Cod, Florida, I mean, anywhere, the Caribbean, the marina was privately developed by usually real estate developers. There are services in the marina. Usually there's a restaurant there. There's a couple of bars. There's a marine facility there where they can haul your boat out and fix it or put it back in, maybe a storage place. In Chicago, there is no private enterprise allowed on the lakefront. So all of the marine facilities like ours are located away from the lake on one of the rivers. There are two main rivers. The Chicago River runs right through downtown that everybody's familiar with. And then the Calumet River, which is basically the border between Illinois and Indiana. So that's where all the marine service providers are located, like us included. We are on the Chicago River. We're in the downtown Chicago, so we're the closest one to the lakefront, which is great, but it's different from the yacht club. So that all the boats in the winter are in one of these facilities off the river, and then in the springtime they get launched and they all go up the river onto the lake and they spend the whole summer in the harbors on the lakefront. And then until the fall, and they come back again. It's strange in the world of boating, but everybody here is accustomed to it. Well, thank you for clarifying it, because, of course, you were right, and I was wrong, per usual, as my wife would say. But, yeah, I mean, if anyone went downtown, they'd be like, oh, that's where the guy, everyone gets confused with his company. So most people wouldn't know where your warehouse actually is, because I'm looking at that, the Chicago Yacht Works versus the Chicago Yacht Club, unless they are, I guess, more in an industrial district. It says the heart of Chicago is this area. Yes, that's correct. Okay. The Lower West Side. So I guess if anyone's familiar with Chicago, that's kind of where you're located. So what is Chicago Yacht Works? Like, how do you actually end up making money? And can you tell us about your employee size and revenue and just give us a little bit more detail now? Sure. So again, in, in the winter, we store about 500 boats. And that means those boats come up the river, as I described. They come to our dock. And when the season is over, which is October 31st to November 15th, they all arrive. We use two different cranes to haul them out of the water, wash them off. We put them away into the various buildings that we have. Most of what we do is indoor heated storage. So park the boats in the buildings, set them up on their shoring, whatever that may be, based on the type of boat, cover them with plastic, and then they will remain there in heated storage until May, typically, anywhere from April to June, when they get launched and put back. So storage is a big component of what we do and a big component of our income. When I bought the company, 
the gentleman who had owned it only did storage. And his advice was, you need to find something else to do with this place in the summer because it's empty. And my thought was, if you're in the boat business, isn't summer the high season? Doesn't it seem a little weird to do something different in the high season of, of whatever industry you're in? So we've developed a, a service department, which is quite significant now, doing seven figures a year in, in service work. And again, as I stated earlier, we're mechanically working on boats. We're doing the electronical work, electronic work on boats, upholstery, canvas, paint, fiberglass, anything that needs to be fixed or replaced or installed, we do that. And we offer those services as well. We also are a dealer. We were not, uh, none of this existed before I took over. We're a dealer for formula boats and a, uh, an Italian boat line called Czar from Italy that makes rigid inflatables, very high-end, uh, high-performance rigid inflatable boats. We sell a lot of brokerage boats, which means we're acting as a broker on behalf of our customers to sell their boats for them. And in addition to that, we have the only accredited power boating school in the Midwest region. There's only four in the country. We are one of them. So we created a power boating school because there were lots and lots of people teaching sailing in Chicago, but nobody had powerboat classes. And as a powerboat dealer, and most of our customers for storage and service are powerboats, so that seemed like uh, an opportunity and a niche. So we created a school called Chicago Yacht Academy that does that as well. You said you bought the company. So when did you buy the company? I bought the company in January of 2012. Okay. And so what were like revenues and employee count then versus what it is today? Revenues, when I first got the company, or we'll go back, let's say 2011, it was doing maybe not quite a million a year, probably 800,000 and was losing money. And the employee count back then, I'd have to look it up, but I think top of my head, you know, under a dozen people, 10 people, if that, probably fewer the other thing is of those 10 people, about half of them were seasonal so that they were only working during the launch and haul out seasons and would go on unemployment for the rest of the time. And what is it today? Yeah. Today, revenues over 4 million annually. We've had some years with boat sales where the, those numbers are, are even higher. And uh, we've got 17 full-time people and a couple of independent contractors that work with us almost throughout the year as well. Well, what made you want to buy it? Because, I mean, especially if you said the business was losing money when you bought it in 2011. It's funny. I had my career, I've done lots of different things, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, you know, during the downturn that started in 08, there was not much going on. There was not much to do. There was not a lot happening in the world. I had come from commercial real estate where things are really dead at that point in time. And so I knew the gentleman who owned this facility. And he asked if I'd be interested. He's somebody I've known from real estate development work for decades and decades. This was not his main business either. He's a real estate developer and had a big portfolio of nursing homes and other properties. So he'd probably been to this place, you know, a half a dozen times in the 10 years that he owned it. Didn't know much about it, wasn't very interested in it at all, and asked if I'd be interested. So I went over there in uh, mid-2011 and sat in the lobby with a folding chair and a legal pad and a pen and just started watching and asking questions. And I'd ask questions like, what's your database? What do you use for a CRM? And they'd say, what the hell is that? And I'd say, well, how do you contact people? How do you get in touch with your customers? And they'd say... 
Well, they call us if they need to talk to us. <laughs> um, what's your accounting system? Well, Alicia keeps track of it. Okay, how does Alicia keep track of it? Well, she puts invoices in the disk drawer over here, and she puts cash in this drawer over here. <laughs> I mean, it was literally this rudimentary. So it seemed to me like just a great fun opportunity to turn it into an actual business and run it properly, which is always profitable whenever you find those opportunities. And so how much did it cost you to buy it? At that time, I had a, uh, did a leverage buyout of the business for three and a half million, put over a million and a half into it to get some inventory going to start the, the boat sales side of things and to improve some of the facilities and expand what we were doing so that we could use more of the property for storage and expand that and then buying equipment for service. So, you know, over time, you know, continue to add capital as needed, but, and I bought a lot of equipment. I know a lot more about equipment now than I ever thought I would. Well, you said you used a leverage buyout. Can you explain what that is just so everyone's on the same page? Absolutely. So the business had no debt and it had cash flow, although it wasn't making money, it did have cash flow. And so by going to a bank and getting them to give me a loan based on the property and the value of the property and the business, I used the business to basically buy it itself. So leverage buyout because I levered the existing business to come up with the money to buy it out. So I didn't have to come, at it, come up with that money out of pocket. So anytime anyone says leverage buyout, that means they didn't come out of pocket at all? Typically, that's the structure, yes. So um, there are many different versions of that, when, and there certainly could be ones where you're adding cash as well. It depends on what you think the expected return and yield will be, whether you're adding cash as well. A lot of hedge funds and leverage buyout funds, private equity groups use leverage buyouts, but also add cash because they have lots of cash that they need to put to use, and they can show an ROI that way. But if you're an individual trying to do this, if you have the opportunity to buy a business that has cash flow, and doesn't have any existing debt, you know, it's a great opportunity to get a much higher ROI for yourself by not adding capital. Energetic Austin here, and most small business owners have one thing in common. They wish they had more time. Time that's spent on repetitive tasks that could be time spent on advancing your business to the next level. That's why you need Anthem software for your small business, so you can focus on growing and serving your customers. Anthem Software provides the powerful software automations and marketing services your business needs to thrive. They'll help you find, serve, and keep more customers profitably. Anthem Software offers affordable solutions tailored to your business's needs. They can handle everything from SEO, social media management, content marketing, mobile-friendly web design, and so much more. Plus, Anthem Software provides consulting to help your team turn opportunities into paying customers and can work with any size budget with no long-term contracts. Find out for yourself how Anthem Software can help you achieve your business goals. Visit AnthemSoftware.com to learn more. That's A-N-T-H-E-M Software.com. With Leica, businesses can pass security questionnaires from customers, adapt to newer regulations, and maintain all documents in one place. The platform's automation, workflows, and integrations make passing audits and minimizing risk easier than ever. And you don't have to worry about keeping up with new regulations. Every customer gets a dedicated compliance expert to help understand requirements, implement policies, and fill ongoing responsibilities. Leica is also the only compliance platform that offers everything in-house. From tooling and expertise to the audits and monitoring, Leica is a turnkey experience. 
Historically, compliance has been done inch by inch using different tools for every certification and audit. But Leica was built to help high growth businesses alleviate stress and take charge of compliance comprehensively. You know what? For people like me, compliance is complex. It's hard to unpack requirements when you don't know what they mean and how to apply them in a way that makes sense for your budget and growth stage. So to make compliance a little bit easier on you, today, listeners get 20% off when they join Leica. Just visit heylaika.com forward slash millionaire to get your exclusive deal. That's H-E-Y-L-A-I-K-A dot com slash millionaire to request a demo and get 20% off when you sign up with Leica. Well, yeah, to, and also leverage works both ways. So if you fuck it up, then it goes very bad too. That's what I always, everyone always forgets. But I mean, yeah, obviously I've heard the term leverage about, I think probably people have, and I usually hear it with like hedge funds and whatnot. So financial definitions, if you will, like you said, kind of can switch depending on who you're talking to. And that's why I just wanted to make sure I don't think I'd, I mean, I've heard of people being able to come to the table and maybe buy without putting any capital in, but I just thought it always meant that you used a bank, but just in your instance, you also didn't have to bring any capital to the table? Not initially. And then over time, I guess you've realized you did need to? Yeah, I added capital to grow the business from where it was when we bought it. So day one, the business, I owned it, I paid for it, I didn't put any capital in, and it existed as the storage-only business that was there. But to then build a service department, we had to buy equipment, we had to hire people. So all of those things took additional capital. And did you own 100% of the business at that point when you bought it? Initially, I had a, a small earnout with a partner who put up the capital to buy the boats, but I bought him out shortly thereafter. And I guess in doing this and getting, I guess you, you said like paid three and a half million, but really put another million. So you put four and a half million total when you bought the business. Mm -hmm. I guess, did that come with the real estate? Yes, it did. So is that why basically you were able to not come with real estate basically worth at least four and a half million or whatever? So that's why the bank was willing to just give you that without you putting any initial capital in? Yes, the real estate was and is very valuable, and that certainly helped from the collateral aspect. But I had to be able to show that the cash flow from the business with the changes that I was going to make would be able to pay the debt. Well, yeah, thanks for getting all technical with us. I, th I think that really helps because I don't think I really dove in financial terms, if you will, so some people can understand like how you're able to come to the table without this. So it seemed like a fun opportunity. And I guess we can go back to even further on how you even got started in business. But I think we get an overall perspective, if you will, at least your initial beginnings with the Yacht Club. Sorry, not the Yacht Club. The Well, because I got both tabs up. The Yacht Works. I mean, that has to happen literally every day, right? <laughs> we actually had a uh, a huge stove shipped to us at one point. I'm like, I'm not building out a kitchen. What's going on here? Turns out it was supposed to go to the Yacht Club, but they, yeah, that happens a lot. Okay. Yeah. I literally have it on two tabs to make sure I didn't screw it up and then I screwed it up. So I think we got an overall perspective. Should we know anything else before we rewind and understand how you even got started in business? I don't think so. Okay. Well, it sounds good. So where should we reel it back to you? How far back do you want to go? To when you're in your mother's womb. How about that? <laughs> yeah, boy, that's that's a long time ago. So when I was in school, uh, college, not not high school, I'm not going to go back too far. Don't worry. I was studying architecture and really wanted to be an architect and I really wanted to design and build buildings. But I had a number of friends in the architecture program and fraternity brothers of mine who were ahead of me several years. And it just looked horrible. 
these guys were graduating and living like six guys in a tiny apartment in Hoboken, New York, and, you know, working a hundred hours a week and making like $14,000 a year. And it just looked like the world's worst possible outcome for going to school. And I had been in high school, starting in high school and early in college, working at the Chicago Board of Trade as a you know, first I was a, a runner, which is sort of the lowest part of the food chain where you literally, back in the old days before computers, they would write out an order on a piece of paper, fold it in half and give it to the kid. And the kid would run it into the pit to squeezing between all of these traders who were yelling and screaming with their hands up in the air and find your broker who you need to give this to and hand it to him so that he could then fulfill that order. And that's how orders both in the stock market and futures and so forth all used to function in the old days. So I had spent a lot of time at the Board of Trade and worked there for a number of years and worked my way up the ladder working on the floor. And I'm looking at these guys who killed themselves in architecture school and, and have this sort of not great existence. And I knew guys at the Board of Trade who were working from 7 to 2, uh, 7 a.m. to 2 p.m., They'd leave at 2 p.m. and go play golf in the afternoon. They're making $100,000 a week. And these guys, my, my poor brethren from architecture are making, you know, fourteen dollars to $20,000 a year. It seemed insane. So I didn't pursue architecture formally from that perspective. I went back to work at the Board of Trade. So you're saying, well, where did you go to um, university? Syracuse University. Okay. So did you actually graduate with architecture? I did not. I left early to pursue an opportunity that I saw at the Board of Trade and in the bond markets because it was calling me to go to work as opposed to finishing the degree. And I think I was um, you know, somewhat disheartened by the potential outcome of pursuing this degree and not really wanting to go that route. So I wanted to go make money. And so when you're saying the Board of Trade, they didn't actually trade stocks there, right? Was it something else that they actually ended up trading? The Chicago Board of Trade was the world trading location for... Commodities? Yeah. So U.S. Treasury bond futures, U.S. Treasury bond options. That's the area I worked in. But across the hall was the commodities pit where they traded soybeans and corn and wheat futures, etc. Okay. Yeah. Because I always remember hearing, like, I don't know how I even, I, I did that without Googling everybody, by the way. Uh, but yeah, I always remember hearing commodities were traded in Chicago versus, I guess it seemed like stocks and whatnot more in New York. I don't, I don't know if there was a certain reason why, maybe the, because the farmers were out there and it was easier back in the day. I have no clue, but you now actually work on commodities. You worked on bonds, you're saying? Correct. Yeah. Treasury bonds. And you said you're a runner right out of college or even during college? During college. After I left, I was a phone clerk, so kind of work your way up. You're a runner first, and then you're a phone clerk, and then you get to manage the phone desk, and then you try to work your way up into being one of the brokers who's in the pit uh, fulfilling orders. So back in the day when I was there, which was a long, long time ago in the 1980s, if you were fulfilling orders as a broker in the pit, so that means when a customer, uh, let's say you're an individual investor, and you ask your broker to buy treasury bonds for you, or you want to take a position. It's a little different than buying stocks because it's a, a futures contract. But to simplify it, you know, I want to buy 10 bonds today. The broker would then take your order and he would call down to the trading desk on the trading floor. They would write this on a piece of paper, hand it to the runner. The runner would run it into the pit to 
that specific broker who worked for that same company. And then that broker would see, you know, this guy wants me to buy 10 bonds either at a specific price or at market. And then he would, uh, if you see those old movies and TV shows and things with all the guys standing in the pit, waving their hands at each other back and forth, they used what we call open outcry to then buy those 10 bonds for you. And then that's how the orders got fulfilled back then. But that broker who actually fulfilled that order would be paid based on the number of contracts that he completed. So to buy or sell, he got paid per contract. And back in the day, people were getting paid a dollar a contract to fill those orders. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you worked at a big desk, and I worked for a couple of firms where we had institutional clients, so you might have an order to you know buy 10,000 bonds at a certain price or 100,000 bonds at a certain price. That meant that broker just made $100,000. Did he have to actually do individual tickets just to get that? Or like, was he supposed to buy that on one ticket and get $1? You would do it as one order. So he would be trying to buy in the marketplace 100,000 bonds at a specific price. And as long as he can complete that order within whatever the parameters were set by the client, then he got paid that. So it isn't without risk because if he says, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole because I could talk about this for hours, but as the broker, you run the risk that the trade has to be cleared at the end of the day. If you bought 100,000 bonds at 93 and the guy who sold them to you says, no, you bought them at 94, you have a problem and you've got to get it figured out so that the customer ends up with what he expected and the two, you know, the buying and the selling broker can reconcile this in their own balance sheets. So it's not free money. There's risk and, and uh, skill and, and lots of other things that were involved, but it could be very, very profitable. And I knew a number of people who were my peers from an age standpoint who were doing this and, and making a very good living. And it was my objective to follow that path. And I was working my way up the food chain to be at that point where I'd be in the pit and, and fulfilling orders. I was just thinking when I said if they did like 100,000 tickets one day, I was, I don't know, I'm always just trying to think that if those guys are trying to manipulate the system somehow to make sure they got that $1 per trade. But like you said, it didn't matter if it's on one piece of paper versus like 100 or 100,000 of them, you're saying, right? Yeah. The manipulation came when people tried to move the market, people who had enough money and enough volume. Paul Tudor Jones is very, very well known today. Now he's a multi-billionaire very successful money manager, but he used to be very, very active in the U.S. Treasury bond market. And he would do things at very specific times by putting in a, such a huge order that it would move the whole market enough for him to make money and get back out again. That's like Elon Musk today, huh? Yeah. Every time he talks about Bitcoin, I'm convinced <laughs> he's got a trade going somewhere. Yeah. Dogecoin, actually, just just to make sure everyone's on the same page. Yeah. I actually asked this on interview number seven, and I still remember this. That's because I think this guy might have been from Chicago because that interview was going a little sideways. And I asked him, and I think some of us have seen Wolf of Wall Street. Was there like a lot of cocaine and stuff going on on the trade floor down there? Like, it seems like those guys get pretty wild. I, I don't know if all that stuff's actually true. What were you seeing and partaking in? I did not partake in that. I understood that there was a fair amount of that back then. I didn't see it ever on the trading floor, but there were two or three bars that it seemed like everybody went to after the final bell. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of activity there. It was. It's a crazy environment. There's no question. 
Different people deal with stress differently. There were a lot of poker games going on on the floor during the day, you know, and everybody down there would gamble on anything, absolutely anything. You know, is it going to rain this afternoon? Who's going to win this golf game? Liars poker was a really big game. I mean, everything, anything and everything, there was a, some kind of a, a, you know, a line or a way to gamble on it. And today, are there even people on the floor there or is everything digital there even in Chicago? Everything's digital. It's all completely gone. It's amazing. It doesn't make any sense in today's world. You can trade so quickly on any platform now. And, and obviously there are companies that have very sophisticated systems that can trade, you know, in milliseconds. And if you think about the old days, we're literally picking up a telephone, waiting for it to ring, then the guy on the floor answering it, then you tell him the order and then you hand it to some kid who has to run it into a mass of people. It's ludicrous in today's world, but that's the way it worked for a long time. Yeah, I remember seeing this financial documentary that they're showing like in New York, you, one of these hedge funds or whatever, it's like, let's say Comcast is their cable company provider or whatever, that these people were actually laying their own fiber internet. If they could get there a millisecond faster, it was worth like billions of dollars for them to lay their own cable. So that's what they would do because that way they can put in the trade a millisecond faster. And that could mean millions of dollars each transaction or something of that nature. So yeah, it's, it is quite amazing. Like you even just running down it seems like it might take two minutes to buy something versus something that takes a millisecond now. Absolutely. And so how long did you do uh, that for? I was down there on the floor through Black Monday. If anybody even remembers, 1987. Monday, I think it was October 13th. Maybe it was the 19th or something like that. But anyway, that was the first big crash we'd had since 1920 or 1929, I should say. And it was pretty crazy. It was an amazing experience to be on a trading floor when that happened. But it was panic and pandemonium. And, and uh, it really changed the makeup of the market, at least for a period of time. So I always describe it as in wartime, it's very easy to, if you're in the military in a war, you move up your ranks very quickly because people are getting moved around. People are getting killed, unfortunately. And there's lots of reasons why you can kind of move up the ranks pretty at a decent pace. And, and that's the way it was when the market was really gung-ho and going. But the minute Black Monday happened, after that, it, my prospects for going from the trading desk where I'm answering phones to being in the pit filling orders, what I thought was going to be a couple of months and I would be there now looked like it could be many years. So I got all my securities licenses and left the floor and actually went up to work in the office to develop a book as a broker off the floor and worked there for a number of years for a firm called Refco, which at the time was probably the most prestigious futures company or firm in the world. Many weird and bad things have happened to Refco over the last decade or so, which is sad, but it used to be quite a great place to work and a great institution. And I worked there until I decided to get back into real estate and sort of built the architect in me calling like you studied architecture for a little while, but you hadn't actually like bought any homes or done any real estate yourself. Up to this point, you'd just been, I guess, a stockbroker? Exactly. Okay. So that was 1995. I'm doing the calculations, right? You're just around 29, 30 years old? Yeah, it was just before that. So I left Refco in 1991. In 1987, I bought a four flat in Lincoln Park. And again, great leverage opportunity because the rent from the three apartments was enough to cover the mortgage and all and the taxes and the utilities. So I lived in the fourth apartment for free. So yeah, you lived in a quad like house or like when you say a fourth apartment, did you actually like own four apartments? I, 
I just want to make sure everyone envisioned this correctly, including myself. Yeah, and I'm I'm using Chicago terms, so so I apologize for that. Yeah, a four unit building or four flat is one building. In this case, it was three stories tall, but it was divided up so that there were four separate apartment units within that one building. So I bought a single building, but it had four apartments inside of it. Okay, and you did that in '87. Yes. Okay. So that was right Black Monday. So was it right before Black Monday or like how, I mean, Black Monday was October 19th, 1987. I'm looking at it. Yes, it was before that. It was early in the year. So that's when you did your first real estate. So were you making just okay money, I guess, on the floor before that? Because again, you weren't a broker yet. Usually when you become a broker is when you, seems like you start making money because you get into sales. Correct. So I was doing okay and uh, not, you know, anything off the charts. But again, my father helped by help guarantee the loan to help me get the loan for the building. And the building had enough income to cover all of its costs and expenses. So lenders, at least in positive markets, are very cash flow conscientious. And therefore, if they see that their loan can get paid from the money that's coming in automatically, they're much more willing to do a deal than if it's entirely based on you. If you go and buy a single family home for yourself, it's all on you to pay that loan and therefore much riskier for the bank. If you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. Streaming has revolutionized our lives. We used to wonder if there was anything good on TV. Now we just ask ourselves which of the thousands of great options we're in the mood for. The same thing goes for books. Instead of standing in front of your bookshelf waiting for a title to jump out at you, sign up for Scribd. You get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more, all with one low monthly subscription. I use Scribd to find the latest and greatest business secrets that will take my business to the next level, and you can too. With Scribd, you can access the largest digital library in the world, right from your favorite device. Automated suggestions and hand-curated picks make choosing your next book easier than ever. Easily switch between titles, genres, and formats right from the app. And discover new work from authors like Roxanne Gray, Charles Yu, and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com slash millionaire for your free trial. That's try.scr. 
ibd.com slash millionaire to get 60 days of Scribd for free. That makes sense. And so after you buy that and get a quadplex or whatever that you're in the stock brokerage realm for seven more years, right? I guess, did you make good money doing that? Did you enjoy that? And why did you want to get into real estate from there? I think it was really a calling. Frankly, I was making very good money. I was a bond trader for the most part. I actually built a book of business helping to clear trades for smaller firms. So I traveled around the country, met with a number of small firms, and you brought up Wolf of Wall Street, but there are lots of little shops out there that are investing money for people as a stockbroker, let's say, and they need to clear their trades through a bigger firm. And so I had a book of business with a number of small firms that cleared their trades through us. And I had a number of individual investors who were my clients who I advised and or traded on their behalf. So I made good money doing that. And what's good money? Well, God, I just I wish I could even remember what the dollars were like back then because everything's so relative. You know, I vacationed in the Caribbean. I had an Alfa Romeo convertible that I'd always wanted. I thought I had it all. I didn't have any, any issues. I don't know what to say. I don't remember the exact dollar numbers because it's so long ago. Well, yeah, I don't know exactly. Like what, 250K a year or something like that, you think? Maybe in today's terms, probably not even quite that in today's terms, but it was probably like 50, 60 grand a year then, which today is probably like 150 grand. But I was 20, you know, something years old. And single? Yeah. You're pretty good with your inflation. I got the inflation calculator out too. Okay. Yeah. So 50 or 60 is basically worth about 100 today or whatever. And that's a lot of money, especially when you're young 20s. I guess you dropped out of college and uh, you're single. That's, I think that's the biggest thing that helps, right? Yep, absolutely. And you don't have to pay rent because your rent's being covered by the three different quad units, right? Exactly. So life's good. And then you said you had a calling for real estate? Because I own this four flat, I started renovating the units inside. So I would be living in one and I would renovate the apartment I was in. And then I would move into another one and rent the one I had just renovated for more money than I was getting before. And so I moved my way through the building, eventually ending up in the biggest unit. And I was able to increase the income of the whole building by doing these renovations. And I really enjoyed doing that. And I liked it a lot more than what I was doing at work every day. So I'd show up at work and all I was thinking about was, how can I get a new refrigerator cheap for this unit? And how can I, you know, redesign this unit this way? And you know, what's the best use of space? And I wasn't thinking about the bond market and what the Federal Reserve was going to do next and so forth. So, Well, you know the Federal Reserve, they're just going to print more money. You knew that, right? <laughs> well, back then it was uh, not as common as it is these days, that's for sure. <laughs> well, it's funny because like uh, I'm, I'm the exact same way. I think well, I guess you didn't have computers to look at back then, but even now today, dude, it's like, it hurts to, for me to even look at screens so much. And I, I really enjoy working with my hands and doing other things other than just a computer. So it's, you know, I think part of it is that you actually can see something getting done that's physical as well versus computers today. And I, I don't know, maybe you kind of felt the same if you're doing stock trading for or, or trading at all, that maybe it's mainly phones. I, I don't even know if you're using computers as much back then, but maybe you had that same enjoyment. I'm not sure. I agree with that 100%. It was very, very fulfilling to see, to envision something and then watch it come to fruition and then see the final product. It was very fulfilling. You know, when you're trading, you're, you're up one minute, you're down the next minute. At the end of every day, you reconcile where you're at, but there isn't anything that's left over. 
You know, there's nothing to show that you were there. I say that, yeah, there's no proof that you actually even did anything. You could tell people you did stuff all day, but then it's like on my computer, it's still a black screen after I turn it off. No one really has a clue. Versus if I went to mow the lawn, I'm like, oh, there's proof the, the grass is cut. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very true. Okay. So yeah, you're starting to get this feeling and itch that what were you going to want to do in real estate? Keep buying like homes and trying to put tenants in there or what was your plan? I found a factory in my neighborhood that was for sale and it was a neighborhood that is pretty much 100% residential except for this factory that was a longtime holdout and found that they were looking to sell it. So I talked to my dad and he and I bought the factory together. I designed it and converted it into four units also, but four large townhomes. So the factory was two stories tall, beautiful vintage Art Deco style building, brick with terracotta and limestone details on the front. Very pretty building. Do you still remember the address? Yeah, there's four addresses because I had it legally subdivided so that they wouldn't be condos, deliberately wanting to save people the assessments that are legally required in condominiums. So I think it was 2218 to 20, no, 2240, 2242, 2244, and maybe it was 2238 to 44. I think it was North Racine. Okay. Yeah. In case anyone was wondering, because again, you, you stayed in Chicago this whole time, right? Yeah. That building's still there. It's still four units. It's still, it looks almost like it did when I first did it. It's a beautiful building. It's a great neighborhood too. How much did the building cost and how much did you put into it then to renovate it? Because it, before it was just a warehouse. It wasn't even anything residential and you made it into residential? That's correct. Yeah. It was a picture frame factory where they made picture frames. And I don't even remember if there was really plumbing in there, but there must have been. But yeah, it was just wide open sort of factory space when we bought it. I don't remember what the numbers were, honestly. I wish I could. I don't even know if, where I could look that up. But yeah. It was substantial in terms of both the amount of work that needed to be done and, and the, you know, we took out big construction loan to do that. And then the potential sale prices obviously worked out well because it was being converted from a factory into residential in a very high-end residential neighborhood. But there was no, like, when you said you made it into four different units, you had to put up the walls themselves and make them, because there's no walls with these units that you envisioned, correct? Correct. Yeah, it was. Um, so we carved the building up, built a center walkway that went all the way through the building in the middle, had a huge skylight over the, this walkway. So when you walked in, it was all naturally lit and there was a beautiful entryway because the front two units had their own entrances right on the street, but the rear two units had to be accessed through this center walkway. And then for ingress and egress and fire requirements, that walkway had to go all the way through to the back so that people could get out into the alley or get to their garages in the back if they needed to as well. So we had to create that whole center walkway and that whole process and then also divide the units sort of the other direction halfway through the other crossways so the front units would be separate from the back units. You were 29 around that age at this time? Because if you had just quit and it was 1995, we were saying, when you started getting into real estate? Well, I bought the Kenmore property in 87. I bought the Racine property in 91. So I was... 25. Yeah, right about 25. So you quit after a couple of years. I, sorry, because I was looking at your LinkedIn and it had something about real estate in... 1995. But yeah, so 1991 is when actually you started, other than having your own quad, was this factory that you had converted. Yes. You'd quit your stock trading totally just to do this project? 
Yep. I had a, not a formal business partner, but a kind of a trading partner. So a guy I sat next to and who helped me connect with Refco at the time. We kind of covered each other's books when we were out, but we weren't actual business partners. So I sold my book of business to him and packed it up, went into real estate development all in. So was your dad super wealthy? He's a very successful lawyer, and he also specialized in real estate, which I think got me hooked on it early on as a kid. So he's done very well. Because, I mean, just undertaking this at, you know, 25, like I said, he trusted you enough, even if he's like co-signing on a loan to do it, that, again, it's not like you're taking quad house or, you know, duplex and like the renovations you did before, I'm not going to say they're simple, but it was already kind of built out versus this is like real development where you're really taking something else and making it into something totally different, you know? That was the exciting part. This is truly a vision. You have to see what it could be before you even buy it and have that idea. So it was a very, very exciting project. The 90s was not a great time to be doing this stuff. And I did not realize that because the world that I was in, if you're good, you make money when the market goes up, you make money when the market goes down. You're not looking at macro trends and how they're impacting real estate and things the way that we would today or that I would today. But 1991, in retrospect, if you look at the history, was a really bad time to be in real estate and real estate development because that was when we had the savings and loan crisis. A lot of the savings and loans shut down or taken over by the federal government. There were people who ended up making a lot of money because of this environment, like Sam Zell and others, but it was not a great time to be starting in the real estate development business. And loans became more difficult for buyers to obtain because of this environment and because there were fewer lenders out there. So the project, while very successful physically, was financially not as successful as it could have been or we wanted it to be because it lasted much longer than we had planned. Isn't that always the case in real estate development? Well, it's the first big lesson that I had that timing is everything. And not just when you do it, which is the most important part, but how long it takes is just, it's so critical because the clock is ticking on your money the minute you draw it down. And the longer it takes you to pay it back, the more expensive it is. But on the macro level, the biggest issue is really when you do it. And if you can see those macro trends and get in when markets are turning and moving in your favor, you can do extremely well and be very, very aggressive. But the minute those trends are turning, you've got to really pull off the gas at a minimum, if not pump brakes, because that's really where people are making big money or losing it. And so how long did it take you to complete this project? <sighs> I wish my memory was as good as your quick research. It was years. I don't remember how many years. Let me think. Probably three or four years to get it not physically finished, but sold and completely sold out and off the books. It was a big project to undertake from a physically, in terms of what we did, as you said, but it took, so one of the units sold pretty quickly and did well. The next one went thereafter, but then, you know, the other two languished for a while. And that was the part, it was, you know, the market was not doing great. And so it took a while to get out of those units. And so after this project, what did you end up doing next? Well, the interesting thing is that because of this project, I ended up in the construction business. So while undertaking this project as the developer, I had hired a carpentry crew. I had hired, obviously, all of these various subs to work there. And for a whole different you know, slew of different circumstances. In one case, 
I just saw that the, the guy who was running the carpentry crew was taking a lot of the money. So we had agreed on an hourly rate for him and his crew, and he was taking the bulk of that for himself. And these guys all wanted to quit because they weren't getting paid what they were promised. He's pocketing their money. He's not running the job well, and uh, et cetera. So I got rid of him, and they all came to work directly for me. In another case with an electrician, I had a similar situation, but the guy just wasn't managing the, his own business properly. So I ended up becoming a construction company as well and building out. So about halfway through this project, everybody was working directly for me, or most of the subs were. And a couple of large Chicago developers, one in particular, had seen the project. It got some notoriety. It got some very good press in the local press. And they approached me to come and do some projects for them. So I did some projects and initially some small projects for people like a home renovation in one case, a historical renovation of a 1800s townhouse. But then these big developers asked me to come in and, and do some work for them. And it seemed like the construction portion of my business was going to really take off. And it did for a while until one of these big developers just stopped paying. They had some financial issues themselves and they stopped paying. And when you get really big, so do your bills and so do your costs. So I was in the process of, I had just taken over a 277 unit condo conversion project on the lake in Chicago from another contractor. Long, crazy story. They brought my company in to just work on the high-end units on the very top of the building where people were buying two or three units. These were rental apartments at the time. This developer converted them to condos. So people would buy two or three apartments and combine them into one. They wanted somebody with very high-end, detailed type of construction experience to handle those units. So they brought us in to do that. The contractor who had been in the building previously and was still there doing the smaller units on the bottom did not like the fact that we were there at all and made no secret of the fact that he was very upset that we were working in the same building. As they gave me more and more units, there was one point where developer liked what we were doing. I had a whole logistics plan for the building. We had a crew that came in every night, cleaned out all the units, restocked every unit with the materials we needed for the next day. So we were moving much faster and much more efficiently through the building than this other contractor was. I'll never forget this. The developer called me one day and I was headed to a concert and said, great news. We're going to give you the whole building. We're kicking the other guy out. You guys, you've got the whole building. And I said, great, with great trepidation because I knew this other guy was a psycho. He was not going to take this news very well. That night I got back from the concert and my house was set on fire. Fire marshal the next day said, I've never seen so much gasoline in one place in my life. I can't believe you're alive. Clearly, I wasn't supposed to be because he, he was not happy about this whole situation. So it's something to think about for young entrepreneurs out there who take business away from the competition. Sometimes there are consequences for doing that, which I learned the hard way. The construction business was going really well. We were doing all of these units in this building, making a lot of money. My costs were huge because when insurance for a construction company with a hundred, you know, employees is like a hundred grand a month back then. So doing great, but I got to, you know, these, these payments have to keep coming in. And then all of a sudden they just stop. And so we had to stop work. I had to lay people off. I had to file liens against all these units. And I figured I'm going to get paid because I have mechanics liens filed against all the unsold units they have in this building. They can't sell them unless they pay me 
So where's the risk? Well, what I didn't realize is that this big developer actually owned the title company that he used to close all these deals. And so the title company insured over all the liens so that they had no value. So he'd never paid. There I was in my 20s out a million dollars, which was an unbelievable amount of money at that time. I couldn't pay my bills, couldn't pay anybody. So that was brutal. And that was the end of me. I did one or two more projects and got out of the construction business. And uh, I'm very happy that I did. I, I love building things, but I'm happy to have other people do the construction work instead. Well, how long did you do the construction business for? Five years? Yeah. So that overlapped with the development work because it, it was all happening at the same time. So I probably did that for four or five years. And I still wasn't 30, so I'm in my late 20s at that point. That's fine. We can stop there because I'm wondering where you stopped with the construction so we can pick back up. I need to hear more about your house being set on fire first. <laughs> okay. So did you actually own a house downtown in Chicago or was this a condo? This is the most interesting part so far, so I'm, I'm not going to skip over this. All right. So this is that four-unit building that I bought in 1987. I still lived there. Oh, okay. I lived in the, what I called anyway, the owner's unit because the other three units were rented. So it was the whole third floor and the front half of the second floor was my unit. And then there was a rental unit that was the back half of the second floor. And then on the first floor, there was a front unit, front half, and then a back half unit. So there are two units on the first floor. Was there proof that the guy whose quote unquote work you took did it? I told everybody who it was and that it had to be him. And the investigators came back and said that he had illegal aliens, you know, people who were undocumented who were on his payroll do this. And they used plastic milk jugs filled with gasoline so that there's no fingerprints. He had to have done this before because it was brilliant the way that it was executed. Yeah. I wish you would have told me that that's the trick. So. <laughs> now everyone knows if I burned down someone's house, it's, it's on the on the podcast now. But yeah, yeah. so, did insurance cover everything? Yes, they did. It was great. I mean, literally. So I had renovated this building, and so I had outside lights all the way around the perimeter that were not on any switch. They were only on photo sensors. So when it got dark, they went on automatically. And I came back from this concert at I don't know two o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. The whole house is pitch black. There are no lights on. Now, I had two German Shepherds inside my apartment. So I figured if the dogs are still alive, it's safe. But something weird is going on. So I park in the garage. I go home. The dogs are there. I take them out briefly and go to bed because I'm exhausted. It's very late. I remember waking up thinking that the kids across the street were playing basketball because I heard this weird noise that was constantly like pounding or crackling. I, it turned out that the wall next to me was on fire. You're really tired. You hear stuff and your, your eyes are still closed and you're kind of out of it. Your brain makes up an image of what that noise must be. And I'm thinking people playing basketball and I open my eyes and the wall three feet away from my bed is literally yellow with flames. So run downstairs with the dog. I had a cat too. He was already at the front door waiting to get out, run outside. And fortunately, the flames were so high that an employee of a 7-Eleven that was a block and a half away saw the fire and called the fire department. So when I ran out the front door, the fire truck pulled up. I hadn't even called anybody yet. And all your tenants were able to get out in time too? 
everybody got out but my bedroom which was in the third floor back and the second floor rear apartment were just gutted i mean just absolutely gutted i had a television on the wall and this is don't picture a flat screen because they hadn't been invented yet so hey one of those big box tv tube televisions in this little niche in the wall in my bedroom and it melted to like the size of a i don't know like a toaster the fire guy said, must have been 4,000 degrees in here for that to happen. It was terrifying. The one other thing I'll never forget, walking through Chicago Firemen did a fantastic job. They're very fast and efficient. They make the biggest mess you can fathom because they break every window they can possibly find. But they put out the fire and then the, it's now, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning or 6.30 in the morning or something like that. And the fire chief says, where's my beer? I said, excuse me? He said, I just put out your fire. Where's my beer? And we're standing in a smoldering place where everything is black. And I point to the refrigerator, which is melted and covered in black. I go, it's in there. Wow. Chicago politics. We're coming full circle, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did he really want a beer or was he joking? I don't know. At that point, I was too freaked out to even appreciate any subtle humor. So I, I can't tell you. Right. Were you like legitimately scared, like ready to move out of Chicago or like, I imagine you have to remember this kind of like it was yesterday. Yeah, it was really hard to process that fact. Like somebody just tried to kill me. You know, my house didn't burn down because somebody left, you know, a heater plugged in. Somebody doused it in gasoline and set it on fire quite deliberately and may have been watching me when I came home since the lights were already out. So, yeah, that was very, very disturbing. I got rid of a car then that I thought was very easy to spot and bought a different car. And I wish I had never done that because I wish I still had that vehicle. But I did things like that because I was terrified at that point. Did you sell that place after you got the insurance money or did you like end up still staying there? I actually moved into one of the unsold units on the Racine project while I was using the insurance money to renovate the Kenmore property. And I renovated it all back so it was better than before. It was able to raise rents even more. Really did some really cool renovations in my unit. And again, huge savings when you're the contractor and the designer and everything yourself. So that helped a lot. So I was able to upgrade all of that. And I stayed there until I sold it. But that was a few years later. But basically after that event, you realized that kind of construction wasn't for you? Yeah, it's a really tough business, especially in a big union-dominated town. Chicago is very political, and there's a few big construction companies here that do most of the work. And, and unless you're going to somehow go head-to-head with those guys, it's not worth it. And so from your construction company ending that in your late 20s, to me, it was kind of wild that you were able to go from basically successful stockbroker, it sounds like, to pretty big size construction company. I don't know what size you actually end up being within a couple of years as well. Like both of those you did within a few years of being in each industry, which aren't even related. Yeah. You just kind of follow the opportunities as they arise. And I think that's the one probably piece of advice I give people, but also follow the opportunities and pursue them because there's some great ones out there. They're not all great, but that's the fun part. When it comes to your next business read, you do have options. You could pick up that trendy new buzzwordy business book, or you could learn the timeless buzzword free lessons of a straightforward modern classic. I'm talking about Good Profit by Charles Koch, a CEO with a real world track record of decade upon decade of actual exponential business growth. 
Want the lessons from someone who's actually done it? Start by visiting goodprofitbook.com. That's goodprofitbook.com. My last name, which is is a very renowned last name on the island. There are only two branches of this family. One is extremely rich. What I mean by rich is this family. They're billionaires. So that's you. I'm the other branch. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want to be. Exactly. <laughs> so if you want to jump on a call with yours truly and discuss how to become a billionaire, well then join Patreon today. And then from stopping your construction company in 1995, again, you're coming about to be 30 years old. What did you end up doing next? Well, then I was in financial straits because these guys owed me tons of money. I owed lots of money to people and that they weren't paying their bills. So I had a lawyer trying to figure out how to get them to pay. But in the meantime, I took a job working for a consulting company that specialized in consulting to small and medium-sized businesses. It was a horrible job. It was great experience, but it was absolutely horrible. I had flew to places like Dodge City, Kansas, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I remember I had one assignment where I was supposed to assist in a change of ownership passing from father to son. And this was a furniture business in a small town. And this guy brought us in to you know, facilitate this ownership change and process. And I get there and then I have a meeting with everybody and everybody's pretending like this is great. We're, we're anxious to get this process started. It's going to be great for the family and Junior's going to take over. And then the father tells me privately that his son has a brain tumor. He doesn't really know how bad it is and he's in denial of the whole situation. So they have no intention of giving him the company because he's not going to be around for very much longer. So we're really just doing this as a charade. <laughs> like... I'm staying in a motel in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, because you want to fake out your son that you're really going to do something that you're not going to do. And what are we supposed to do? I mean, we're here to actually implement accounting procedures and do stuff that you don't want done. So there was a crazy experience. I didn't do that for very long. I probably had that job for between six months and a year, but I probably was in 20 or 30 different companies in that period of time. It was a fantastic experience because the one big takeaway I have, and I tell people this all the time, every single company in the world, I don't care what it is, is 98% the same. Everybody thinks their company is completely different. Yeah, but what we're doing is new, it's innovative. It may be, but that's the 2%. Everybody's in business to make something or buy something for one price and sell it for a higher price so that they make a profit. It boils down to the same basic components in every single business. And when you go in and lift up the hood and look inside 20 or 30 or 50 or however many on a regular basis, there's just nothing any different between most of it, most of the workings of it and how they do what they do. It's just whatever their product or their little twist on it may be. And that was a great lesson. Well, you just gave away my number one business secret, which is buy low, sell high, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's good advice. So you do that for about a year. And again, it's just trying to help people with ownership structures, either in family businesses or something else. And you're looking at all these different types of industries. Mm -hmm. Okay. And was that company based in Chicago, even though you were traveling to exciting places like South Dakota and was it Kansas? 
Yeah, I was all over the Midwest in every small town you can fathom and every small plane possible. So that company was based in suburban Chicago. I don't know if they're still around or not, but they're a pretty big company, but it was not a fun job. Well, did you get a fun job after a year? Well, I came back, I quit that job and I got married. I decided to get my real estate license. So I'd never had my broker's license. So I took a class for a week or whatever it was and thought that was the easiest and most fun thing I'd done in terms of the class. It was super easy. I got a hundred percent of my tests. Got a job in a brokerage outfit in town and started to sell real estate. I was focusing mostly on commercial real estate. I did some residential, which I didn't care for because people are far too emotional about residential real estate. But I did very well on the commercial side. Got all kinds of awards, rookie of the year, top salesperson, and all of these things, mostly because my projects were bigger than other people's. But I had enough experience with how to build things, how to, you know, what is possible from an architectural and a zoning standpoint, things of that nature, to be able to put that knowledge to use in, in a brokerage environment. And that gave me a leg up for sure. So within a year of you starting in the commercial real estate brokerage firm, you were the top guy you're saying basically in Chicago? Well, not in Chicago, in the firm. Okay, in the firm. But how big was the firm? Well, it was a very big residential firm, the biggest in the city, but they had a small commercial department. I was getting lots of awards because people were selling five houses at, you know, a half a million dollars each, but I'd sell one property for $4 million because it was a commercial property. So in dollars and commissions and things like that, I was doing well. Well, how were you able to build a book of business so quick though, right? Doesn't it usually take a while to, I guess, try to build that up or like, what was your strategy to do that? I went to all the people that I had known before. So I knew lots of people in the real estate business because I was a developer. I had a construction business. I had built up lots of contacts throughout this period and went back to all of those people. So people at the title company who I used to close the deals with that, you know, the units that I sold, uh, the brokers that I worked with back then. So it's a lesson in, you know, don't burn bridges because you never know when those people can help you in your next endeavor, even if it's in a completely different niche or a completely different venue. Don't burn bridges, just burn houses that you live in. Yeah, exactly. Well, I didn't do that. So hopefully nobody's house gets burned down who listens to this. But I'm wondering even when you're doing this, is this because you even talked about a CRM later on, I guess, with the boating business or whatever, but even just getting started, because you've told us, I think it's pretty interesting, kind of the developments in your career and you're just about 30 we're talking about right now. But I mean, you switching over, how are you able to organize and do this so well? Because we haven't really talked about like your work ethic. I've just kind of talked about how you've been successful in these things, but I don't know, were you waking up super early, staying super late? What was like, how were you successful? Because obviously there's a repetitive pattern here. If you're able to do well in this too, and it's your third company and you're just around 30 years old. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how to answer that. I have a much more disciplined approach to all of that today than I ever did before. And I don't think, particularly in terms of routine, you, you mentioned waking up early. I, I think that that's something that's very critical. And today I would say your health and your, you know, your schedule and all of those things are very intertwined with how successful you are. I don't think I was that smart back then. I've always worked very hard. Everything I do have ever done, I'm doing it seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I don't really turn off. So that was the main thing that then helped you, right? Because most people would just be doing nine to five, I would imagine. I think that's true. And I think a lot of people may need to be able to turn off at the end of the day. It works for them and they can compartmentalize. 
I think for most people who are entrepreneurs, though, that's the key difference. I think my definition, I guess I'd say, of an entrepreneur is somebody who can't turn that off. You can't kind of stop. You know, you're always looking for a way to make it better. You're always looking for a way to do it faster or do it cheaper or whatever the case is. And, and that's what's fun about being sort of a serial entrepreneur is, again, if all businesses are the same, it doesn't matter what business you're in. You just try to get in and make the most out of this one and figure out what its issue is. That's been my process anyway. It's been fairly successful, but it's always about trying to figure out who are your customers? What do they really want? What do they really need? How can you add value to them and build on that and then make your widget better? And so you did commercial real estate brokerage here for a few years? Yep. A couple of years until I encountered, I literally was involved in a transaction that changed my life in a significant way. I was helping a client as a real estate broker to complete 1031 exchange. Now, I didn't know at this time what a 1031 exchange was. I actually asked my father, the real estate lawyer, what is a 1031 exchange? I did a bunch of research on it. I, again, contacted people who I knew in my network, so people at title companies and so forth. And title companies were then and are today, typically, they don't have to be today, but then they were typically an integral part of the 1031 exchange. For everybody's benefit, a 1031 is a section of the Internal Revenue Code that says that you can avoid paying capital gains tax on any gains from an investment property as long as you reinvest all of those gains in a similar property of equal or greater value within six months. So, and there's more to it than that, but that's the general gist of what it is. It's still on the books today. It was uh, added to the Internal Revenue Code in 1921 and has basically been unchanged ever since then. So this client, her husband had passed away and he owned an investment property in, I think it was Texas. And uh, so she sold it because she couldn't manage it and didn't want to deal with it and wanted passive income, but also to avoid paying the tax. So talking to a person, a gentleman I knew at a title company, he had a client who was a developer who had built a shopping center and wanted to figure out ways to get some cash out of the shopping center, but not necessarily relinquish managing it. He had an office there. He wanted to keep managing it, but he also wanted to figure out a way to get cash out of it so he could go and develop another property. So we looked at this situation, talked to some lawyers, and figured out that we could arrange for him to sell my client a portion of the shopping center. She would get passive income for her portion that she owned, and he would keep managing it, and he'd get all the other income, and they would own it together. We had to structure it so that they wouldn't be partners. They would be co-owners. Having completed the transaction, to me, I said, this is a business. This is huge. There have got to be lots of people who want to do this and lots of developers who want to unlock the capital in the properties. If I could put those two together, this could be big. And so that then became my focus. First as a broker and did a number of those deals. And then a large development company based here hired me to run a whole division dedicated to doing this first with their properties. And then when we ran out of their properties, because I sold them all, went out to buy other properties. And then I eventually started my own company doing that. And then a whole industry was created out of this that literally became a multi-billion dollar business in industry nationwide with, I don't know how many companies in the end uh, did this, but up until the downturn in 2008, 
there were probably a hundred companies doing this all over the country and uh, it was big business. And all from your first transaction that you didn't realize kind of what it was. What was this known as? Was this a tick, right? Yes. Yeah. Tenant in common. Okay. So TIC, that's what we're talking about. Tick. So yeah, you were actually the guy that kind of started this even kind of by accident, you're saying? Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I had the first private letter ruling request into the Internal Revenue Service in 1997 to try to get validity for this whole thing. And that turned out to be a very long-term process that in 2001, we'd been petitioning the IRS. They wouldn't give us the letter that I wanted. So we went to the Treasury Department and they ended up creating a task force and my tax attorney and I were sit, were part of that task force and we helped write Revenue Procedure 2002-22. And after that came out, that's when this thing really took off and got big. And again, it became a multi-billion dollar industry, you're basically saying, from the one transaction. Yeah, it was huge. I don't know. I mean, they're still doing it today, but today... See, the, the key issue here, and it gets very like specific and nuanced, so I don't know how deep we want to go in this, but it's very tax-based. Yeah, then why don't we just pause here, if you don't mind. This is where, probably where we can do a part two, because that's what I thought would be a good stopping point, is you know you developing kind of this industry, and maybe we can get more details, especially for the people who really like real estate who listen to this podcast, because obviously we can talk about this tick structure that you started, and then I mean, we're only up to 1996, 1997 so far in your story. So we got about 20 more years and then we can dive in way deeper, if that's okay, with what you actually do today and how you kind of got from this real estate to Yacht Works. Sure. Does that work? Yeah, whatever you want. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us on part one. I guess if anyone was going to you know, leave now and not have a chance to listen to part two right away, did you have any last words of wisdom for the entrepreneurs who are listening now? I would say look for opportunities that are everywhere, follow them when you can. And today, the today me would definitely say have an exercise regime, take care of yourself first. The old adage I learned somewhere in the consulting process as well, pay yourself first. Too many startups and small business people die and go under because they always put themselves last. If something happens to you, the business is gone. So take care of yourself first. Well, yeah, thank you everyone for joining us for part one. We look forward to diving into even more details for part two and the Patreon members that kind of help support us. So um, thank you for all the members who are about to listen to part two. And then I guess if one last thing, if anyone wanted to say thank you for doing this part one, Rob, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and say thanks? I'm happy to, can I give my email address? Whatever you think. Yeah, I've had a guy give his cell phone number before. I'm like, I don't know if I'd do that, but email's probably the best. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to give myself a number, but email uh, is rob at chicagoyachtworks.com. Well, thanks again for coming on, Rob. Thank you. Hey guys, Energetic Austin here. I hope you enjoyed that interview. The second part of the interview is actually available right now for all our Patreon members. Here's a preview of it. Probably had a net worth before any of this stuff happened in like 06 of 10 to 15 million dollars easily. And then you're living on your friend's sofas? Yeah, exactly. How did that feel? I mean, was that just like a kick in the balls? I think, yeah, to a certain extent. In the moment, it's devastating and it really does sort of take the you out of you. Your bojo's gone, your personality's changed. It's a devastating thing. So become a Patreon member to get part two right now. And by the way, become a Patreon member to get part two right now. And by the way, become a Patreon member to get part two right now. Right now. Right now.